0: This is episode 464 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today, as we look deeper into the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist, the question of their respected disciples and their relationship to each other stands glaring before us. I mean, why did John still have disciples after he proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God? Why didn't John insist that all his disciples follow Jesus? And for that matter, why didn't John himself cease from what he was doing and follow Jesus? And why is there perceived tension between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist? It, you can almost feel the tension when John's disciples confront Jesus and chastise him for not doing what they and the Pharisees were doing regarding fasting. It was almost like they were saying, why are we doing things right, and you, Jesus, are not teaching your disciples to follow us? Don't get me wrong. John was doing a great work. In fact, Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived. But what we can learn from his life is the difference between devoting your life, devoting yourself to what is good versus what is the best. So join with us today as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. As we've been going through this study on the life of Christ, and I don't know how long, it seems like all of 2020 we've been in John chapter 1, I've I've seen John the Baptist in ways I've never seen him before. Things about John the Baptist, questions that I had that were troubling. They're kind of amazing. I'm 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 trying to trying to understand what's going on here. And one of the tools that I want to teach you is that when you're studying the Scripture, if you'll ask these simple questions, what's going on? In other words, picture yourself as watching this scene unfold in front of you like a movie, and then you can try to determine who this person is and who's it reflecting and when this pronoun is used, who exactly is he talking to? And that happened to me, especially last night as I was looking at this. And I'm really kind of excited to um, to share it with you because what we're going to be talking about is something that we don't like talking about, which is total commitment because all of us have a commitment, but I'm not sure it's total I don't think I've ever met anybody that was absolutely 100% totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have read books about people who were that way back during the Philadelphia church age. I have seen these people who would go to a, a revival meeting and somebody would read the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and then they would just pack up and go. Because this is what God told them to do. And if the Bible says that, I'm going to go. And they they didn't care about their future. They didn't care about what was going on. They just went and served the Lord with no support, with no sending church, not spending years in deputation. They would just go. And so as we're looking at total commitment here, uh, we kind of know the story because we've been over it for four months in John chapter 1. John, it begins with this like prelude to his ministry. It talks about who Jesus was in the beginning and was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Then there was a man, verse six, sent from God whose name was John. Then it talks about John. It talks about Jesus. And then verse 19 talks about this testimony. The Pharisees and priests come up and be questioning him and he gives this testimony. I'm not the Messiah. And then they question him again and I'm not the Messiah. Verse number 29, of course, he sees Jesus coming towards him. This is after the temptation. and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he repeats that phrase, at least the first part of that phrase, in verse number 36. The very next day, he says, behold the Lamb of God. Every time he sees Jesus, it seems like those are the words coming out of his mouth. Behold the Lamb of God. Verses 29 to 36 four is John's testimony. Hey, I didn't know who he was, and I didn't know who God was going to send to Israel, but that's why I was baptizing with water for repentance. But God spoke to me and said that the one that I'm baptizing, when the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and rests on him and remains on him, what we talked about last week. That's the one who's the Messiah, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. Verse 35, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And then it picks up in verse 35, where it says again, the next day, and kind of a similar event takes place. So I'm looking at this, and I'm talking thinking about total commitment, and I'm thinking about being totally sold out to the Lord. And we talk about being a 10 spiritually or a 12 spiritually. And the Lord asked me the questions I'm going to ask you. Do you remember when you gave your life to the Lord or when you got saved or gave your heart to him or whatever you choose to call it? Do you remember that? I was 28 years old, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and and I remember the change that took place in me, and I remember that being my father's son, one of the things that I did, like my dad, is I would lie whenever I was confronted with a situation that made me look bad or I was going to get in trouble, I would just immediately lie. And I would lie very convincingly and I would hold on to my lies no matter what, even in front of all this evidence that I am lying, I would just hold on to that because then the other person would think maybe they got it wrong. And that's that's how it was. I married Karen and brought all that into our married life. They weren't big lies, but they were nevertheless lies you know, we get the phone bill. And the phone bill was a lot more than it should have been. It's because I made all these calls to my brother. And, and so she would ask about that, and it was a knee-jerk reaction. I would just lie, lie. When I got saved, it seemed like all I did was apologize to her for lies that I had told her for six months. I mean, it was a change that took place. Do you remember what happened when you got saved? You remember what it was like? And I'm not asking you to share it, but I want you to think about it. I was lost, and now I'm saved. Was it a monumental change? Was it a light and darkness kind of change? Or was it kind of, you know, I've always been in church my whole life, and I'm just a pretty good person, and now they tell me I need to make a commitment because I'm 12 years old, and you know, I need to go down to the church and get baptized or something. So was it was it a radical change? Was it just a, a nominal change? Is there any change now? Do you have any changes in your life that still persist? And have you ever thought about why Christ redeemed you in the first place? Why did he choose you? Was it because you're better than somebody else? Was it because he liked you more? Was it because you were smarter than the average pagan out there? I mean, why did he redeem you? What was the purpose of that? And we know from John chapter 15 that it was the fact that you were to bear fruit Which brings us to this question. If I'm a believer, which I assume we all are, and I remember when I got saved, and I remember my life then, and I understand from John 15 and other passages that Christ redeemed me not for my own benefit, or not because he was lonely in heaven and needed me to be there to cheer him up, that he actually saved me for no other reason than to produce fruit. And if I don't produce fruit, there's this pruning process that takes place that Jesus dealt with in John chapter 15. So if that's true, then what does it mean every day, day in and day out, to follow Jesus? Are you a Christian? Well, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when he says, follow me? Uh, is it something that I choose to do? Can I not follow him and still be a believer? Is there a difference between uh, being a, a disciple and being a follower of Christ? And again, we're not talking about disciples, meaning the 12. We're talking about disciples that mean people who follow Christ in the New Testament. Of those people who were disciples, and we're going to define that term in a minute, you had, of course, 12, which are designated to 12. But in the upper room, there was 120 people. There was 11 of the original 12 and all these other people who were followers of Jesus, who were disciples of Jesus. I mean, what what does that mean? Is being a follower of Christ the same thing as being a disciple? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it seems that way. Yes, I think so. I think being a follower of the Christ is the same thing as being a disciple. Okay, Steve, are you a disciple of Jesus? If I'm a follower of Jesus, then I guess I am a disciple of Jesus right now. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of his? I know what it meant 2,000 years ago in Galilee When you were a disciple of Christ, you left everything for him, that you surrounded yourself with him, wherever he was, you were, that you put your entire life on hold or did away with your old life because the new life was more important, you know, Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishers, fishermen of fish. And he says, we're not going to be fishing for fish anymore. Instead, we're going to be fishing for men. So when they signed on to it, being a disciple of Christ in the New Testament, does it mean the same thing as being a disciple of Christ in the church today? And if so, how is our life different? Someone says, do you have any religious affiliations? Well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Christian, or I go to church. But if you ever said, well, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, would our life manifest that difference? Could people tell that instead of adopting some sort of religion that you know, we, we keep under wraps. Instead, it's this radical transformation that from the inside out that I'm a disciple of his. What would that look like? What would that look like today? And scripturally, what does the word disciple even mean? And is it the same thing as a follower? Because in our culture today, we call ourselves a Christian, which means little Christ, by the way, that we emulate Christ. Or we call ourselves a follower of Jesus. That's more popular today because you know, I can be a follower of anybody. But a disciple of Christ means something a little bit more deeper. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Because what we have here is we have John with some of his disciples, We have Jesus walking up. We have our passing by and John saying something about Jesus. We have disciples of John now no longer becoming disciples of John and becoming disciples of Jesus by following him. And what does that even mean? So, biblically speaking, here's what the word disciple means. It means a learner, a pupil, a one who seeks to understand. I'm a disciple of the, I don't know, some sort of art school of painting. I'm a disciple of this. I'm a disciple of this particular persuasion. I can be a disciple of anything and I want if we use this term. I'm a learner. I'm a pupil. I want to seek to understand a little bit different. That's the general term for disciple. But in the New Testament, it means something different. In the New Testament, it's more than a pupil it's more than a learner. It means a, it's an adherent who accepts the instructions given to him and makes it his rule of life and conduct. In other words, it's not just about mental learning or following some sort of creed or code. It actually means that I'm, I've devoted myself to that. If I become a disciple of some religions, I put a dot right between my eyes, and I walk around in a toga, in 90-degree heat, and it doesn't really matter. Or I change my dietary requirements, or I do other things like that. And as a, as a Christian, it's someone that I'm accepting the instructions of the person I'm following, and I'm going to make those instructions, those commands, my rule of life and conduct. Are we disciples, or are we learners, or are we just religious people? Based on this Greek definition of the word in the New Testament that you will find every time that word is used, this is what it means. Are we a disciple of Jesus? Or are we just someone who has adopted the lifestyle to a degree? Still sinning, still doing the things we want to do, still following some of what Jesus said and some of what we're not. And if we are a disciple of Christ, would your wife know? Would your husband know? Would your neighbors and friends and kids know? How would someone know that we truly belonged to him? Or are we just a follower? Is that somehow separate from being a disciple? As you look in scripture, you'll find that many times, initially, Jesus will come up with a somebody and he will say, follow me. Or sometimes that follow me is implied in the text, where they'll give an excuse. Or sometimes they'll come to Jesus and they'll say, I want to follow you. Follow me, or it's implied that he said that, or I want to follow you. So what does that even mean? I mean, it's the conversations the Lord was having with me last night. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? Steve, does it mean something other than being a disciple? No. It, it doesn't. Is being a follower greater than being a disciple? No. As a matter of fact, it almost feels like being a follower would be less committed than, than being a disciple. Do, when you follow Jesus, do you have to physically move and literally follow Jesus wherever he goes, or is it more like a mental thing? where, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus mentally, but I'm not going to change any other aspect of my life. Or when Jesus called people and says, follow me, does it mean they actually packed their bags and followed him? Can you be a follower of Jesus, New Testament-wise, if he was alive and on the earth today, and still stay in your home and still do the things that you normally do? Or does following a Jesus mean to be where he is? Know what I mean? So let's look at a couple examples where Jesus tells people to follow him. Here's one in uh, Matthew chapter 4. And it says, Then he said to them, and he's talking, of course, to Simon and Andrew, Follow me. And so, what happens if I do? If I do follow you, what's in it for me? I'm a fisherman, and it's all I know how to do. I'm making money, I have a home, Peter has a wife probably has kids, has a business. I'm making my way in the world right now. I meet this holy rabbi, and he says, follow me. And if I do, what will happen? You'll no longer be a fisher of men. Your old life will be done away with. How you defined yourself, how you identified yourself, and we in our culture identify ourselves as men by our professions. Women have a tendency. It's always about how many kids they have. But with us, it's always about our, our profession. You'll no longer be that profession anymore. You will be fishers of men. And if you'll study this, the only time Peter voluntarily decided to go back to his old life is at the end of the Gospel of John, where he grabs a couple of disciples. Jesus is during his 40 days on the earth between his resurrection and ascension, and they're going to go back fishing. And they had a huge haul. 153 fish. Uh, John tells us exactly how many they were. And then Jesus walks up to him and says, are are you going back to what you did? Do you love me more than these? And these, of course, is the fish he's talking about. No, Lord, uh, I'm not. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. So when Peter and Andrew heard Jesus say, follow me, was it like at a revival meeting where you know we're going to sing the song I have decided to follow Jesus, and we're going to sing that song thirty eight times, and the pastor's going to try to get you to come out of your seat and come down forward and take this old preacher's hand and commit your life to him and follow him and so we Feel moved and we slip out of the, our chair into the aisle and we come down forward and we shake this hand and he prays for us and now we're followers of Christ. Because it's, it's a mental thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's an emotional thing. I mean, that's, that's how Simon and Andrew realized it, right? Until you look at the next verse and immediately they left their nets and it was a literal following and they followed him. Where did they stay last night? Wherever he stayed. And he may have stayed in one of their their houses. Who knows? Where did they go the next day? Wherever he wanted them to go. What were they learning? Everything he was teaching them. Follow me. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, we've got this other statement here. Where Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Do you remember the context of this statement? Somebody's coming up to Jesus and saying, I'll follow you, but let me first go um, bury my father. And I'll explain to you later on tonight what that really means. And Jesus says, no, no, you follow me. Let, let Stuff that doesn't really matter, it's my dad, if we took it literally. It's my dad. I need to bury him and take care of his estate and make sure that I and my brothers are all taken care of and our financial needs are... are Satisfied? I want to move into his big bedroom. I want to secure my, or take care of my own security. No, you let the dead bury the dead. Don't worry about that. So here, was this a mental following or a physical following? It's obviously not a mental following because he was talking physically. You let them take care of that and, and, and you be about the kingdom. Matthew chapter 9. He comes across this man named Matthew. I love Matthew. I uh, didn't know this until we had moved to Washington State, and I was teaching through uh, the book of Matthew. I think it was the book of Mark I was teaching through. And I came and really started looking at Matthew, and I didn't know this at the time, but there were two types of tax collectors during Jesus' time. There was uh, and there's Greek phrases for him. One is goodbye, which is what Matthew was. What you had is you had a tax collector who basically would hire people to sit at the booths to collect taxes and he would be in the big house because he didn't want everybody to hate him and he would pay that person a certain percentage. Then you had a really selfish, greedy tax collector that wasn't about to share the bounty with anybody else and he himself would be the one that collects the taxes because he doesn't want to pay anybody to do that and he didn't care what you thought of him and that's exactly who Matthew was because Matthew was sitting there collecting taxes. And as Jesus passed him there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Well, if I do, um, I'll lose my franchise. And if I do... Uh, Rome is going to take this thing away from me and I'm making a tremendous amount of money and all my needs are being met. If I follow you, it's going to cost me something dearly. And plus the people that are already following you hate me anyway because I'm a turncoat when it comes to the Jewish people. Nevertheless, he arose and followed him. Did Matthew become a silent, quiet, nobody really knows, just kind of a mental follower of Jesus? Now, the very next couple verses, he throws a party for all his tax-collecting friends. And, and Jesus is there. His commitment cost him something dearly. What did my commitment cost me? A better life. You know, uh, I'm a better husband and better father. I mean, that's not really a cost. That's just kind of a benefit. So I had to give up the old life in order to embrace the new life. But for me, it's been all roses. It's been great. It was a, it was a marvelous exchange. What did it cost Matthew? All his money, all his prestige. I promise you that he had to sell his home. That um, I mean, it was, it was probably a bad time for Matthew. So Steve, same question I'm asking you, the ones the Lord asked me. What does your commitment cost you? Has it cost you any friends? Has it cost you not doing something you really want to do? Or do we do the stuff we want to do anyway, even if it's a sin, and we basically just justify it and rationalize it because, after all, it's the culture in which we live. So what are the requirements, Lord, for following you? He tells us that in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, do you desire to come after him? Do you desire to have a deep spiritual relationship with him and to follow him and be with him and to have him in you, to have him say, well done, good and faithful servant? If we desire to follow him, there are certain requirements that Jesus puts on it. And it's a lot more than what we tell people when they first get saved. Oh, God just loves you so much, and he loves you just like you are, then if you will just say this prayer, if you'll just ask him to be your Lord because he's so lonely without you, then everything will be great. Okay. If you'll just give Jesus a try, give him two weeks and see if your life's not better, and if it is, then you can stay saved. If it's not, you can just call it quits. I mean, I've heard gospel presentations preached that way. Not what Jesus says. You're going to follow me. First of all, he needs to deny himself. That's that humbling part that we talked about in the book of Chronicles. So how much do I humble myself? Does that mean I just give up a few things I don't really care about? No, that you take up your cross. That's, that's an instrument of death. That's not humbling yourself. So part of me is dead, but the other part that I kind of like or is beneficial to me are You know, I get the reward from I'm going to hold on to that I'm willing to humble myself, deny myself, take up my cross, which is my instrument of excruciating death, and then follow me. It's not follow me, and by the way, it'd be really good if you did these other things too. It's if anyone desires to follow me, here's two incredible requirements, and after you've accomplished both of those, come to the end of yourself. Come and follow me. What does that mean? I mean, what are we supposed to take this literally? Well, do you think he was speaking metaphorically to those people listening to him? They knew exactly what a cross was. And if it doesn't mean what it says, what does it mean? Do we just make something up? Oh, he just means you need to be willing to be devoted to him that much, even though you, he'll never require you to, to be like that. Really? Where does that come from? Matthew 19, 21. Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler, someone who has a lot of money, somebody who Jesus loved, somebody who wanted to realize he was lacking things in his life and had kept the law and did everything he could to make himself holy and righteous in God's sight, but knew he was missing something. So he comes to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you want to be perfect? You want to be complete? Go and sell what you have. All of it? Yeah. Yeah. Sell what you have. Not sell part of it, not give a tithe or or be really spiritual and make it 12%. Sell what you have. All right, so I'm going to liquidate all my assets. What do I need to do? Can I set them up in a trust fund? Can I put them in some sort of annuity so it'll take care of me in my old age? I mean, what do I need? Can I have these credit cards, debit cards that are already paid off so I can take care of myself? What do I need to do? Sell what you have. And give it to the poor. What? Yeah, because you're thinking earthly. And I'm telling you, if you're willing to sacrifice and die to earthly desires, that you will have treasures unheard of in heaven for all eternity. So once you have done that, come and follow me. You notice where the follow me is at, it's at the end, it's not at the beginning. It's not follow me, and then you know, it'd probably be a pretty good idea if maybe you did these things too. Bless the poor more with some of your money. Uh, what, what are you saying? Well, the question is this: Steve, do you want to be perfect? You want to be complete? Are you okay living at eight or seven or a six on a scale from one to ten? Are you satisfied living in Laodicea? Not thinking you need what the Lord has? Because I'm satisfied with what I have? You know, I'm rich and wealthy and need nothing, it says in Revelation chapter 3. And then Jesus looks at us and says, don't you realize that you're poor and naked and blind and wretched? So if that's true, I want what the Lord has promised this man. And if so, how do I interpret that today? What does that mean today? If you've noticed, I have not taken obscure passages here. I just looked at the word, follow me. And we just kind of took it through just the book of Matthew. And over and over and over and over again, there are requirements that are put there. So we're back in John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse uh, 35 through 37. But when we get a little further in verse 43, we have, it says, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. So uh, I'm here in Gastonia, but I want to go to Rock Hill. Okay. And so I find Philip and I say, Philip, follow me. So where do you think Philip went? He went to Rock Hill with Jesus. It wasn't a mental thing. Follow me. You follow me in my teaching. You follow me in my understanding of who God is. You will learn from me how to pray and how to do the things that I do. But I also want you to be with me. Yeah, I know Jesus, but I have other things to do. I have a job, I have a mortgage, I have responsibilities. I'm in the middle of a class right now. I want to better myself. I want to make things, you know, I'm just trying to make my way in this world right now. And you've interrupted it all and just wants me to leave that behind and follow you. I mean, what does it really mean? See a pattern here? It's not a mental thing. It's not acquiesced into some theological creed. And it is totally opposite of everything I have ever known in Christianity my entire life. That we want people to come and be comfortable and embrace an ethic when we should be embracing a man. Here's a good one here. This one I forgot about. If anyone serves me, this is an if-then clause, if anyone serves me, I'll serve you, Lord. Then let him follow me. To serve Christ is to follow Christ. So I'm going to follow you mentally in my prayer life. or I'm going to follow you. No, no. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant who is serving me and following me we will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. In other words, where Jesus is, That's where his disciples will be. That's how we learn. That's how we understand who he is. And then I look at this and I realize, what does that say about us? don't Don't get fixated on packing your bags and going to another town or country or stuff of that nature. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about living where Christ lives, having your life totally devoted to him. And if he chooses to have you sell your stuff and go somewhere else, that's okay. So we're in John chapter 1. I want you to realize that Jesus had followers and Jesus had disciples. He has followers then and disciples then. He has followers now and disciples now. But so did John the Baptist. John the Baptist had followers and John the Baptist had disciples. And so are they the same thing? Is the requirements, or the being a, a disciple of John the Baptist, was that different than being a disciple of Jesus? Were the requirements different? I mean, what did Jesus and John the Baptist require of both of these people? That's really simple. You see John the Baptist, you see his disciples. You see Jesus, you see his disciples. John the Baptist's disciples stay connected to him. They learn from him. They were there to serve him. They were there to do his bidding. They were there to ask questions on his behalf. They were there to help him in his ministry. They didn't stay at home and meet with him every third week or have a zoom call or something of that nature. The disciples of Jesus did exactly the same thing. Wherever he was, they were, because what he was doing was teaching them that when I'm gone, these are the things that you will do like I'm doing to take my place. So we're in John chapter one, verse 35. And we notice here that it says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. These are people that had left their regular way of life. They had, you know, if they hadn't done that fully at that time, they were sacrificing all their free time just to be with John the Baptist. They made a, committed, a commitment to him so that people would look at them and they see that John was there and how devoted they were to John. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, I have no idea how far away Jesus was, he said again, Behold the Lamb of God. Then two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. You know, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in verse 1, number 29, and nobody followed Jesus. The very next day, he says that in verse number 36, and two of his disciples followed Jesus. Or did they not? Were they just trying to discover who Jesus was, yet they were still committed to John the Baptist? And if so, what did John the Baptist do about that? I have my disciples that are following me and helping me in my ministry. They know from day one that my job is to prepare the way of the Messiah. I am baptizing And then all of a sudden, as I'm baptizing someone, this heaven opens up. God himself speaks from heaven. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes in a light on on Jesus and remains on him. Jesus then goes off to be tempted in the wilderness. I spend the next month and a half telling everybody who comes to me, I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And here's why. Because this event happened. I'm John's disciples. I'm seeing all this, John, we followed you because you knew the Messiah was coming and now the Messiah is coming and there he is, you just pointed to him, there's the behold, the Lamb of God and I'm content to remain one of John's disciples? And, and would John even want me to be his disciples when his whole purpose in life was coming to, to point to Christ? I mean, what's happening here? Now, I've shared with you that one of the best ways to be able to really understand Scripture is to view it like a movie and place yourself in the middle of it and ask yourself a couple questions. What would I feel? What would I think? How would this impact me? And then look at how it impacted impact others in Scripture. So we're going to begin at verse number 29, and I just want to read verses 29 to 35 for you, and I want you to imagine you're one of John's disciples And you hear John say this, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, and he's saying it to the crowd, but mostly to his own disciples. After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, let me explain to you how I know this is the Messiah. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he, the Spirit, remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. I have left my home, or at least all the free time I had, and I decided to align myself with John the Baptist. And for months, John the Baptist has been baptizing me, even baptized me, baptizing for a baptism of repentance, talking about the fact I need to clean my life up or I need to see my need for a Savior because someday the Messiah is coming. And a Messiah comes, he's the son of God, he's the Christ, and we all know that. And then all of a sudden, this man that I have followed, this man that I'm a disciple of, points to Jesus and says, he is the son of God. Do I believe him? I mean, what would I do? What would you do? Would you go, wow, that's cool. That's really cool. I'm going to tweet that and just go back with your day. I mean, what would you do? The son of God is not walking towards you. The son of God is walking either away from you, from you, or by you, not wanting to talk to John for some reason. John sees him and says, that is the son of God. And do you think life would go on as usual? That everything is okay? That I'm just kind of content where I'm at right now. I mean, why were you a disciple of John in the first place? Was it because of his fiery preaching or because you got some benefit out of it? No, it was, it was about his message. It was the message he was proclaiming. And you believed his message that he would know when the Messiah came and you wanted to be there when it happened. So now the Messiah has come. And now John has clearly said, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, uh, sin of the world. Again, behold the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. So is John's ministry over? Has it been fulfilled? Is there any reason for you to remain a disciple of John when the fulfillment of John's entire ministry has been manifest in front of you? And if that's true, Why didn't John go follow Jesus? Why didn't he, as soon as he baptized him and Jesus is going to be tempted, I want to follow you, Jesus. No, 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 I'm going to go be tempted for 40 days in a wilderness, but I'll be back. I'm going to keep doing what I normally do, keep talking about I'm not the Messiah, he's the Messiah, I'm not worthy to, to untie his shoes, he's greater than I am, he's before I am, he is the son of God, and I'm here to testify that. All the 40 days are over. Jesus is coming back. Hey, guys, look, that's the Messiah, yet I don't follow him. I don't pack up camp and, you know, Jesus, can I follow you? None of that happened. Why? I mean, matter of fact, we never even see an account where Jesus and John had a conversation. Well, why is that? So it's nighttime. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Son of God. And then Jesus goes. And they don't know where he went. Luckily, he showed up the next day and they saw him again, but they don't know where he went. They don't know where his campsite is. They don't know where he's staying. They don't know if he'll ever come back again. So what do you think the disciples were talking about at dinner that night around the campfire? Do you think they were talking about how many people were going to baptize the next day? Or we need to get a little more firewood here because the fire is getting kind of low. Man, that was really great stew that you cooked. I mean, what were they talking about? Don't you know they'd probably be talking about Jesus and asking John, how did you know? What was that like? What was that experience like? And do you think that when John was talking to his disciples, do you think maybe there was a theme that ran through it like it did in John chapter 3 when he said, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. And if that was so, if you're a disciple of John the Baptist, what would you be thinking? What's going on in your mind? I mean, did what John say, is it real? Or could he have been mistaken? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable here with John. I like our ministry. I like him. I've kind of moved up in the pecking order. I don't know where I'm going to stand with Jesus as one of his disciples, but John kind of views me as his right-hand man. And I don't know anything about this Jesus person, but I do know about John. And do I want to give up what's comfortable to follow something genuine and real? Yes, because that John said that he's the Messiah. Well, maybe he was wrong. Maybe he just got excited Maybe we need to help John come to his senses. I mean, what what is what's happening here? And then you take a few minutes to look at the various passages in the New Testament that talk about the disciples of John that are still his disciples, that John allows to be his disciples after this event takes place. And it is shocking. I mean, it's what were they thinking? Let me show you a couple. John chapter 3. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. John was also baptizing because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So, John, you're baptizing as a sign of a remission of sin, showing the people's need for a Savior, and yet you've already proclaimed that Jesus is that Savior, why are you still bad? Why aren't you pointing everybody to Christ? Why why aren't you telling your disciples, who obviously have a hunger for the truth, that's why they're hanging around you, this is the Lord, this is Christ, you need to follow him. I want you to so you don't get a a bad opinion of John, I want you to look at John chapter 3. And um, I want you to begin at verse number 25. And I want you to look at the testimony John gives about Jesus. It's like he's pushing his disciples and everybody towards Jesus as fast as he can. Verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you had testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it had been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness, again he says this, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then look what he says. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. And he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in his son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. So, so that you'll not get the impression that John was somehow holding on to his disciples, I can't think of a stronger testimony about the lordship of Jesus Christ than this. Nevertheless, his disciples stayed. They stayed with him. Why? Why were they comfortable staying with John? Why were they still following John? And why, again, did John not force them to follow Jesus? And why did John continue to baptize? I mean, when you place yourself in the account, it just raises questions that seem out of character from a guy like John the Baptist. We see another account of John's disciples. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So John is still doing what he's done before, and John has disciples. Now Jesus and John are doing similar ministries in different locations, yet one is God and one is man pointing towards God yet he's still doing the same ministry. Just like Matthew 4.17 says that the message that John began to preach, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the same message that Jesus began to preach. So why didn't they join forces? Why didn't Jesus take many of his disciples from the disciples of John? He took a couple. Why didn't he take more? Why Why didn't John again follow Jesus like some of the other disciples did? What's happening here? Matthew chapter 9. Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus. Now watch this. I have disciples of John that are now coming to Jesus and they're questioning him. You're not doing it our way. You're not doing it the way we have been taught and we should be doing. You're, what you're doing is wrong. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? Well, Jesus already, t- or John already told them that you know the bridegroom is here. If the bridegroom is here, there's no need for mourning. But someday the bridegroom will be gone, and then people will fast. Note the distinction here. You have Jesus and his disciples who are doing things their way. You have John's disciples still entrenched in the old way. And there's like a tension you can feel, almost a hostility where these disciples of John are coming to Jesus himself, questioning him with an attitude of you're doing it wrong. The Pharisees are doing it our way. We're doing it our way. Why aren't you making your disciples fast like we're fasting and like the Pharisees are fasting? There's a there's a tension going on here. I mean, why is that? What, what's happening here? Luke 7. John, of course, is um, in prison and he's struggling. I would really like to know more about his struggle. And so it says, then the disciples of John reported to John all the things Jesus was doing. So John had disciples that were following Jesus witnessing what Jesus was doing, went back to John as disciples of John and said, hey, here's the stuff going on. People getting saved, lives being changed, dead people raised to life, lepers cleansed. It's amazing what's going on. And so John calls now two of his disciples. He's in prison and he still has those people dedicated to him and sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for someone else? Remember the story? And Jesus never tells them, yes, he doesn't. He says, go tell John what you've seen and heard, and quotes an Old Testament messianic passage. And then they leave. And then out of the hearing of John's disciples, Jesus then begins to praise John. Wouldn't it have been encouragement to John if he praised him in front of his disciples so his disciples would go and tell John what the Lord said about him? But he didn't. I wonder Why? He's now in prison. He has these faithful disciples. And at this point, these disciples are not following Christ. They are still committed to John. Why? Why? It's this point of total commitment. Go back to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and let's look at what happens here says so again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. We know now that those disciples were Andrew and the Apostle John who wrote the book. So two of his disciples are Andrew and the Apostle John. And it says, and, and looking at Jesus as he walked, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. He said the same thing and added the phrase, who takes away the sin of the world the day before, and nothing happened. But now, for some reason, this statement resonates with these two disciples. There were probably other disciples there, but we know that these two decided that something had to change, and it was Andrew and John the apostles. You know, we can ask ourselves, did others hear what John said? Well, probably. We don't know was was Andrew and John with John when he said the phrase in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Maybe, or maybe this was the first time they heard it. Maybe they were the only two disciples there. We don't know. But once they heard that statement, everything changed in them. There was something greater than their devotion to John the Baptist. There was something greater than than just fulfilling their ministry with him and all they had learned from him they were now following the Lord Jesus Christ verse 37 says the two disciples heard him speak behold the lamb of god and something happened inside of them and they followed Jesus now if you read the rest of the account what happened is that during this process, they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They themselves became believers. They had heard about Jesus. They, were, they knew that John was the forerunner, but now all of a sudden they realized this is who he was. Let's begin at verse 35 and read to verse 42. It says, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? Not who do you seek, but what do you seek? What do you want? Why are you following me? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, translated teacher, not Lord, but Rabbi teacher, just like John, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour, about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And then something took place. Something happened. Because we find that right after this, rather than calling him a rabbi and rather than saying, We would like to learn more about you, we would like to have an interview with you, we would like to to talk to you. Jesus says, okay. And he brings him into his camp and they begin talking about four in the afternoon, probably talked all night long. But it says that right after that, they changed. In other words, they were filled with this wonder and excitement and they wanted to share with others what they had discovered in Christ like you and I did as soon as we first got saved. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He is not a rabbi. He's not a teacher like John. We now know. We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated to stone, and on and on. Verse 43, he finds Philip. He tells Philip to follow him. There's a transaction that takes place where Philip comes to faith, and then Philip turns around and finds Nathaniel in verse number 45 and says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Salvation took place here. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they fully committed their lives to him. Because we find that it's only when Jesus meets them at the shore later on, where they're in their boat fishing, and he says, follow me, that they left everything behind and followed him. We've already looked at those verses in Matthew chapter 4. But salvation takes place here, but not a fully, totally committed following of Christ. They knew he was the Messiah. They told other people about the Messiah, but they obviously went back to their old life just knowing this truth now, again, sharing it faithfully with those people that they loved. But something was not yet complete. Did they at this point in time follow Christ wherever he went? And the answer is no, because it wasn't until Matthew chapter four that he called them into that relationship and they followed him. So this moment of total commitment didn't come now at salvation, it came later. And for most Christians, it works exactly the same way. What we end up doing is we embrace Christ for who he is and we understand and we're excited. We're overwhelmed. God, you saved you my sins. God, you're so wonderful. God, I just love you more than anything. God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And we open up the word of God and we study it and we share it with people and our lives are on fire for him. And then, then it just gets old. We had a fervency at work but now it cost us something at work to be all fired up about Jesus and we're losing some friendships and maybe a promotion. So we decide to kind of tamp it down and not be so over the top at work. And, and we begin being content with just having our own little spiritual life. And I have it for me and you have it for you. And if you ask me about it, I'll tell you about it, but it's nothing I really want to share. And we, you know, just come to church and Praise the Lord, but hardly ever out there. We bring our families together as cocoons to protect them against the evils of the world. And, and all of a sudden it it kind of fades. It kind of rolls away and we become content. We become content being a six, a seven, or eight on a scale from one to ten. We can't even remember the last time we were a ten. And the reason why we're content with becoming a six, seven, or eight is because everybody we know are six, sevens, and eights or less. And then if somebody gets saved and they're all fired up about Jesus and they're a 10, and tomorrow they want to be a 12, and they come to us and say, Hey, let's go knocking on doors and witnessing to people. Let's, 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 let's go down and feed homeless people. Let's do something for the glory of God. We encourage them to be like us. Yeah, I used to be like that when I first got saved, but you're going to realize that it'll burn out and you'll become somewhat lukewarm like I am, like we are. And the church stays at a 6, 7, or 8. And we're content with being a 6, 7, or 8. And the only way this ever changes is when we realize I don't want to be a five, six, seven, or 8. I want all of Christ, and I'm not just saying what we say we want, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes to have that kind of relationship, to follow him wherever he goes, whatever he calls me to do, to deny myself, to take up my cross, and then follow him. We sometimes come to a point in salvation where we proclaim, and maybe even do for a season, to follow him with reckless abandon, but that, caused, that, that demands graduate level faith. And since many of us struggle with that, we kind of default back to letting Jesus season our life rather than us being the salt of the world. Do you understand the difference? And it happens to me, and it happens to almost everybody I've ever known. It's the condition of the church right now. What do we need to do to be recklessly abandoned to him? I mean, Lord asked me this. Steve, does that describe you? Yeah, yeah. So what happened? I don't know. Sure you do. All right, I did. I enjoy this world too much. I enjoy what the world has to give me. I enjoy the trappings of the world I enjoy my house, and I enjoy money. I enjoy eating in nice restaurants. I enjoy watching movies I want and reading books I want and listening to music I want. My whole life became about me, and so these are the things that I want. And yes, Lord, I'm not involved in a gross immoral sin like I used to be. No, you're just in this lukewarm area where I'm not cold, but I'm not really hot. And Jesus says that being like that makes him nauseous to the point of vomiting. Remember? Why? Because you don't think you need anything. You say that you're wealthy and rich and need nothing. But I see you, as I've shared with you before, as poor and wretched and blind and naked. So what do we do? how do we move from being saved to consecrated to him because i have been saved a lot longer than i have been consecrated consecrated has a tendency of coming and going and it always comes and goes based on my choices you know how long I want to serve the Lord or if serving him becomes too painful or if I want just the toy or trinket that the world has or how I want to identify myself. Do I want to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ? Hey, who are you? Well, my name is Steve McCraney. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than I am so-and-so that does this for a living and makes this amount of money and lives in this kind of house and has that kind of retirement and me, 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 me. And we live in that kind of narcissistic culture that if we're not careful, we'll become satisfied with lukewarmness. Not these guys. Not these guys. Statement. Do you? I fully know that Jesus is the Son of God and so do you, correct? Yet these guys, not Andrew and uh, Peter, or Andrew and John, but these guys just chose to remain a disciple of John. Why? Well, I'm used to it. It's comfortable. It's safe. It it doesn't demand me to actually follow Jesus. I can live where I want, do what I want, and just meet John out there by the Jordan. John's not traveling everywhere, stirring up a bunch of people. Meet John by the Jordan and let him do our religious religious thing, like going to church on Sunday or tuesday night bible study or ladies prayer meeting or something of that nature yet i can still hold on to what i want in life and and devote more time than my friends are to the kingdom yet jesus demands me to be absolutely sold out or totally committed to him wherever he chooses to take me and i don't want to do that and so we have a tendency to be up and down and up and down and up and down you ever been there And what he's looking for is not still being a disciple of John, don't get me wrong, which is a good thing, but being a good thing sometimes is the antithesis of the best thing. And the best thing would have been to follow Christ. Watch what happened. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, just looked at these verses, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. This is the same Andrew that went to find Peter, but it was a time later that this commitment took place. We even have the account where Peter is Jesus is sitting on Peter's boat and he's preaching to the crowds and Peter's mending his nets and then Peter gets so convicted, he comes up to Jesus and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But it was all leading to this consecration. For they were fishermen or accountants or lawyers or merchants or teachers or whatever we want to be. And then he said to them, follow me and I will give your life more meaning than making money. I will, I will let you be known as a life-saving fisher of men, rather someone who makes a, a living, even a good living, catching fish. And it says that immediately they left their nets and followed him. Their response was total. And it was immediate. They didn't think about it anymore. They came to the conclusion, and they left. A couple verses later. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, and I'm sure Peter and Andrew are with him right now. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. What did he call them to? Probably the same thing he did Peter, follow me. Their response, just like Peter, was total and it was immediate. And it not only separated them from their way of living, but it separated them even from their family, from their former way of life. Same thing with Matthew. Sees Matthew at a tax office, says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And I've already explained to you what this cost Matthew to follow him. In Luke chapter 9, there's an account of people coming to Jesus and Jesus asking them to follow him and various excuses that are given. I want you to take this at face value. We're going to stop at this. I want you to, I want you to truly see what Jesus says. And this is not an analogy. He's speaking to people, and he understood exactly what their words meant. Now what happened is they journeyed on the road that someone Someone overwhelmed with who Jesus was came to him and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I will be like John's disciples. I will follow you. I will do what you do and say what you say. I will commit my life to you. Things in my life that need to be gotten rid of, I'll get rid of. Lord, I just I want to have short accounts with you. You are God. Jesus says, okay, but you need to know what you're signing up for. This is not Joel Osteen, your best life now. This is not a genie in a bottle. I'm not going to make your life better. As a matter of fact, uh, later on in the New Testament, it says that everyone who desires to follow me, to live for Christ, will suffer persecution. So I want you to know who I am. Foxes have holes and birds of the year have nests. Every animal that God has ever created on the face of the earth, bees have a hive, every animal has some sort of home. You have a home, but if you follow me, it'll be different because I'm the son of God and I have nowhere to even lay my head. He didn't have a house, didn't have any money, he didn't have a donkey. As a matter of fact, the only possession he had when he died was a tunic, that was sewn by one piece of cloth that they gambled for at the foot of the cross, fulfilling prophecy. He didn't have money to pay his own taxes. And when he was confronted about that, he told Peter, hey, take a hook, go throw it in the the lake, pull out a fish, reach in the mouth of the fish, and you'll find enough money for my taxes and your taxes. When he wanted to describe to the people about giving things to Caesar that belonged to Caesar, but God unto God, he told him, hey, uh, somebody uh, give, me a, give me a coin, because I don't even have one. It's kind of like when I stood up here Sunday and said, okay, I need a 20 and a 5 and a 10, because I don't have any money. You know, I mean, that, that's how Jesus lived. 33 years, had nothing. So you follow him, okay. Doesn't mean that you have to give up your home. Doesn't mean that he's going to send you to Africa. But you can't view this world as your home. Your self-worth and your pride and what you feel good about can't be measured by this fallen world's trinkets and toys. It's different than that. First person comes to him and says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, count the cost. You need to understand what's involved in that. Second person, next two verses. Jesus now goes to somebody and says, follow me. Okay, but here's that phrase. First, let me go and bury my father. That's not an unreasonable request when we read this as Gentiles in the 21st century. It meant something totally different back then. First, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you, you have a mandate from God. You go preach the kingdom of God. You know, there's nothing you can do for your father if you want to look at it that way. Let them take care of that, but you preach the kingdom of God. But that's not what that phrase meant. Back in the Jewish culture, when somebody would say, let me go bury my father, what it basically meant is I want to divide up the inheritance. We're going to go through probate court that I live in the father's house. I have an extension. It's tied to the father's house. If I'm the firstborn son, everything that the father has now belongs to me. So look, I'll be more than happy to surrender my life to you as soon as I have taken care of all my financial needs, everything that I want, everything that I need so that I don't have to live by faith anymore. I don't want to live by these guys who was confronted with 5,000 men and their wives and kids. Only have a happy meal to feed everybody. I want to be able to take care of myself because I don't want to have that kind of faith. And so when Jesus told that person, follow me, this was that excuse. I'll be happy to when I get older. But right now I'm younger. Right now I'm paying my house off. Right now I'm building my business. When I get to the point where my business sustains itself and I can take extended two and three week mission trips several times a year, boy, I'll follow you then. And Jesus says, no, no, none of that really matters. Next verse. And another said to him, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me go say bye to my family. It means more than that. Bid farewell, who are in my house. It means I want to have a couple more flings. Let me have a big party. Let 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 me have one more excursion into the world. Let me get drunk one more time. Let me go buy another car. Let me just take this incredible vacation. Let me satisfy all my carnal cravings now. And after I have satisfied everything I could possibly do when I'm old and decrepit and can't do anything anymore, then I'll devote my life to you. But my young years, my vibrant years belong to me. Let me go say goodbye to my family because that's incredibly important. And Jesus says, no one. Having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for king is is fit for the kingdom of God. When you're plowing, it's difficult. You've got the animal in front of you. You've got the the reins looped around this way. You're holding on to the plow as they're moving forward. You're pushing it down as hard as you can to dig those pharaohs and you're being pulled by it and you got both hands and total devoted to this because you don't want the the animal to veer off is a hard work, but anyone who's committed to do a task like that, to follow the Lord, to preach his kingdom and looks back at what everybody else is doing and how easier their life is. And, and I'm not really devoted or I'm only one arm devoted to this task is not fit for service. It's not fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, what is he saying? saying that following him may be a little bit more than what we think it is. Let's think about Acts chapter 2. Those guys got saved. Many of them came from different countries. There were 13 different dialects that heard that that day. 3,000 people got saved. They weren't all Jews. And they, they didn't even go back to their homes anymore. They They lived together as a communal. They sold their possessions. They gave to anyone who had need because God was so real to them that I don't have to take care of my needs. I just have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll take care of everything else. Insane to even think that way today. The early church had this unwavering commitment to go spread his word to the inhabited world. We're just going to go. We're just going to, Lord, where do you want me to go? Well, there's nobody here in Mogadishu. Why don't you go and preach the gospel? I'm going because my life means nothing to me other than proclaiming the gospel. But with us, and I'm just as guilty, I have a family. I have things that I do and things that I like and responsibilities that I've really taken upon myself that may not even be my responsibilities. And, and he commanded those to love him more than we love our own children, that we love our own grandchildren. It's a kind of commitment that he honors. And the question we always ask is, is it worth it at the end? Is it worth it at the end to be that committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Will he really take care of me when I get old? The Bible says that he will, but do I really trust him to do that, or is that my responsibility? Do I have to do that because I don't think he will? Or maybe he's mistaken, or maybe what he promises doesn't really apply to us today. Look what it says here in Luke chapter 14. It says, and great multitudes went with him. And once again, Jesus thins the crowd. And he doesn't, I think Vic said that one time when we were at the Seventh-day Adventist church, I never forgot. You know, um, it, I kept saying, yeah, Jesus always raises the bar. And Vic said, no, he never raised the bar. He just let us know how high the bar was in the first place. So there's this big crowd following him because it's, he's a hot commodity right now. And he turned to them. I can almost picture this group. What are you going to do today? What miracle are you going to do today? This is going to be great. He stops and he turns to them and he says this. And he meant what he says. They knew exactly what he was talking about. If anyone comes to me, which is obviously what you're doing, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister. I mean, that's all the family relationships we have. And if you have no family and your parents are dead, even your own life, it would be very difficult for you to be a faithful disciple. That's not what it says. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross, we've already looked at that verse, and come after me cannot be my disciple. What are you saying? I'm saying that the tightest relationships that you have, your own children, which we would die for, our grandchildren, our wives and husbands and brothers and sisters, all those people that mean the most to us, we're to, we're to love him so much that compared to our fallen feelings for them, it's like hate. And again, that the word hate here is not hate with malice. It's like he said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But he goes on. By the way, based on this, Based on this, are you a disciple of Jesus? (sighs) Sobering, isn't it? It's worse. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, to count the cost of following Jesus, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This is the cost of discipleship according to Christ, example one. Then we have example two. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else if he can't, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. I'm counting the cost before it costs me something. This is cost of discipleship, example two. And then we have the summary statement. Kind of sums up what it means to follow Christ. So likewise, or therefore, whoever of you, first time it's not in third person, now it's personal. Whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has. The word forsake here is a derivative of the word we get apostasy from. It means to renounce, to dismiss, to bid farewell, or to put something aside to prevent it from being a hindrance or gaining excessive control in my life. I am willing to forsake all the things that keep me from a deeper, fuller relationship with Christ. And so you don't reject this by saying, well, he's talking about our house and money. Well, why don't you just think about relationships that you have, our bitterness and anger and unforgiveness that you hold on to, or television shows or video games or, or stuff that, that we participate in. It doesn't have to be the big kahona. It starts with just the small things. If you ask the Lord tonight, show me God what is standing between me and a deeper relationship with you, those things I need to forsake. He will tell you, and most likely he will start with the small things. Because if you're not faithful with the small things, he's not going to tell you the big things. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, third time, cannot categorically be my disciples. Jesus does not share himself with Anyone, anyone. So, I feel guilty, I feel condemned, I feel, God, I can never measure up, that standard's too high, nobody told me that, so it really can't mean what it does, I don't want to read that anymore, I just want to read John three sixteen, and I'll be happy. But the question is, how do we do that? Is it possible? I want to give you three quotes, actually, Four quotes from three different people. The first one is Henry Blackaby. You know who he is? He is the experiencing God guy. Very, very spiritual man. He's in his 80s. Henry Blackaby. Here's what he says. Jesus taught that your highest priority must be your relationship with him. If anything, good or bad, detracts you from that relationship, that activity is not from God, even if it's good. God will not ask you to do something that hinders your relationship with him. We are to forsake all we have to embrace him. My problem is I have no problem forsaking the bad things in my life. I have a really hard time forsaking the good things because I like the good things. But it's the good things that sometimes are the antithesis of the best things. If anything detracts you from that relationship, that activity is not from God, for he will not ask you to do something that hinders your relationship with Christ. Number two, Oswald Chambers. This one, never saw this one before. This one's painful. If I'm going to know who Jesus is, I must obey him. Jesus says that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and I do the things I tell you to do? The majority of us don't know Jesus because we have not the remotest intention of obeying Him. We do in some things that don't matter to us, but in other things, never, never. It's kind of like when, um, it's kind of like when you're having a yard sale and you had this sofa that you just bought a new sofa. And you have a sofa where the springs are coming out, and you don't want to sit on it anymore because the cats have kind of tore it up and all that kind of stuff. And so you decide, I'm going to give that sofa to the church. And so we're going to give that sofa. We're going to give something to the church that we don't want anymore because we bought something nicer for ourselves. But never, ever in a million years do people say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and donate the new sofa that was meant for me to God, and I'll just be satisfied sitting on the old sofa. True? We do the same thing with our lives. Stuff that I want to do, I hold on to. The stuff I don't want to do, I don't. Because I don't have the remotest intention of obeying him in areas that are going to cost me something. It's always easier to give up those things I don't like in the first place. Third one, A.W. Tozer. I hope you have read writings from these people. A.W. Tozer, what's closest to your heart is what you talk about. And if God is close to your heart, you'll talk about him. Even in church, when we get together, very seldom do we ever talk about God. Do we ever talk about, well, there's a place for that. Really? Where, if not here? Last quote from A.W. Tozer, it is dangerous to be so busy that you have no time to wait on God. So busy, but I'm doing good things, but it's not the best things. And I found in my own life, the most of the things that I'm busy about are things I've chosen to do or how I've committed myself, never asked the Lord what he wanted to do. And the life of George Mueller is the exact opposite of that. I mean, he was so busy taking care of multiple orphanages and five or 600 kids at a time, never once asking anyone for money, had to feed all those kids. And he said, if I didn't spend four, this is just him now, I didn't spend four hours a day in prayer, I never had enough time to get everything else done. How can you spend any time in prayer when you have all these demands? Because then I'd be doing it in the flesh. But when I do it in the spirit, everything changes. Everything changes. And again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of these disciples followed him into reckless abandon, into the unknown, into total commitment. And look what God did to their lives. Do you know the names of John the Baptist's disciples? No. Me neither. Nobody does. They stayed where it was comfortable, doing good work. I mean, we're doing good work here, Lord, and failed to embrace the new work that Christ was doing, and we don't even know who those people are today. There's a lesson there for us, lesson there for me. And it was 3.30 last night when I'm, going through this, and God is chastising me with these very questions that I shared with you. Let me pray.